This is our study in the book of Luke. Uh, we've been doing it now for somewhere around a year. We started in Luke 1, verse 1, uh, chapter 1, verse 1, and we've made our way to chapter 19, verses 41 through 44 today. We will continue on a slow, kind of plodding pace through the book of Luke because there is so much more for us to learn. We are in the beginning of the last week of the life of Jesus. And I would like us to dive into that week, his ministry, his passion, his death, his resurrection in a way that we as a church have never done it before. I would like us to take time and really dive in. And I'm really looking forward to the next probably year <laughs> to make our way. Maybe it won't quite be that long, but to make our way through the book of Luke together. It is a line by line, verse by verse study. On Wednesday night, we're in the book of Galatians. It is the, one of the first books of the Bible, the New Testament, to be written. Written perhaps as early as 47 or 48 which is only a couple of decades after the resurrection of Jesus. And it talks so much about high, what we call high Christology. We'd like to invite you out to our Wednesday study or join us for our study in the book of Galatians. So these few verses are Jesus as he's entering into Jerusalem. We get a nuance on the triumphal entry. We already covered the triumphal entry a few weeks ago, but this is a nuance on it. Something that happened as Jesus crested the Mount of Olives, got that spectacular view of Jerusalem. And if you've seen a picture of the Temple Mount with the Dome of the Rock and the East Gate off to the side, and you're looking down on the, on the Temple Mount, that, that was the retaining walls that King Herod built when he built the temple before the days of Jesus. And, and you're looking down at that impressive view. The only difference would be when we walk over the Mount of Olives and we look at that view of Jerusalem, and today it still is breathtaking, especially at sunset. It's just absolutely gorgeous at sunset. Well, as Jesus made his way over that view, the temple was there. The temple that would be destroyed within 37 years of him riding that cult into Jerusalem. The temple will not stand. In fact, if you were to go into the future, 37 years from the time of Jesus, and you were to come over the Mount of Olives, you would now look at rubble. The army of Rome was so angry when they finally took the city. They sieged it in 66, in the first century. They couldn't take it for four years. When they finally took it, Josephus, who was a Jewish historian, who was a turncoat, he was a priest, who was a turncoat, who worked for the Romans. He was now a historian for the Romans and went along with Titus to take the city. And Josephus tells us that they were so angry when they got in the city, they began murdering, pillaging, raping, crucifying, and they knocked down every building they could knock down. They burned everything they could burn. So if you were to crest it in just less than four decades later, that same hill that Jesus saw, the beautiful Jerusalem with the temple, you would have seen rubble. And it would be a reminder of all of the death and destruction and pain that those people went through in 70 AD. So Jesus, as he makes his way down the Mount of Olives, is thinking of that 40 years into the future. His heart breaks, not because of the destruction of the temple, the glory of God had left the temple long before that. They had misused the temple long before that. But his heart was breaking over the death of the people. 
You, you see that as he talks about why his heart breaks. You would think as he's riding into Jerusalem and they're waving palm branches and they're laying their clothes on the road and Jesus is riding in and they're hailing him as king, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, that he would have this great joy. But he doesn't. He's heartbroken. Now, I want to do this first of all. I want to read these, these just few verses without a comment. That's so hard for me to do. Every time I get into it, I want to comment about it. But I just want to read it. I'll have plenty of time to comment after that, all right? That's how I console myself here. I just want you to get the text, get the feel, get what's happening. As I said, this is a nuance in the middle of the triumphal entry. So verse 41 of Luke chapter 19. Now, as he drew near, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, if you had known, even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the day will come upon you when your enemy will build an embarkment around you, surround you, and close you in on every side. That's an embankment, by the way. Around you, surround you, and close you in on every side, and level you and your children within you to the ground. And they will not leave on you, in you, one stone upon another, because you did not know the time of your visitation. Now, there's a few cryptic statements in there. Jesus talks about them not knowing the day that would make for their peace and not knowing the day of their visitation. So what I would like to do for us as we look at this text is I want to talk about Jesus being a man of sorrows. This is not the only place that we find him weeping. So we want to talk about why he was a man of sorrows, why he wept with us. And then we want to look at what I call the Jesus predictions. And these are very powerful and very important because he makes a prediction that Jerusalem is going to be surrounded and destroyed, which will come true within a few decades of him making this prediction. Finally, I want us to look at these cryptic statements. Why did Jesus say you didn't know the time of your visitation? Why should they have known? And we're going to find out that the Old Testament gives us two places that tell us when the Messiah was going to be there. They should have known. We search the scriptures so that we can see when Jesus is going to return. And there are certain things happening that makes us think it's close. But we don't have anything that tells us when he's going to come back. We're told to be ready because you don't know when he's going to come back. Remember that when you hear somebody give you a date for him coming back. We're coming back. We're coming close to the 2000th anniversary of the death and resurrection of Jesus. And as we get close to that, you're going to hear a lot more people setting dates. Just remember that. But they had dates that were set, and I want to talk about that. All right? So let's go ahead and break this down. First of all, I want us to look at Jesus as the man of sorrow. I don't know if you've pictured Jesus that way. Um, when Jesus asked the disciples, who do men say that I am? The disciples said, well, some say you're Elijah. Some say you're the prophet. Some say you're one of the prophets. Some say you're Jeremiah. Now, Jeremiah is of interest because Jeremiah was known as the weeping prophet. Jeremiah prophesied to Israel right before they were taken into captivity by King Nebuchadnezzar. He told them, if you guys don't repent from your idolatry, you are going to be taken into captivity. Your women are going to be raped. Your children are going to be killed and you are going to be taken away as slaves and the city will be left empty because of you. And he wept and he cried openly about what was going to happen. Jesus's ministry is very similar. They 
are not going to be destroyed by the Babylonians. They're going to be destroyed by the Romans. And so Jesus is known, according to Isaiah 53, this is a prophecy about Jesus, that he would be a man of sorrow, acquainted with grief. We know that he wept with Mary uh, and Martha when Lazarus had died. And I believe that that weeping was a form of empathy. I, I've heard people say of that weeping that Jesus was cry weeping because of unbelief. But I don't think so. God's given us the ability to be able to feel what other people feel. And you know what it's like when you're talking to someone that has a loss and you are overwhelmed with their feeling. You can feel what they feel. The joy, you can have empathy and joy as well. You can enter into someone's joy for something good that has happened to them and you empathize with them on the joy. Now you say, well, I've never felt empathy. There's a real problem. <laughs> Somebody that doesn't have empathy is a psychopath. So there's a problem if you can't feel empathy with people. So Jesus was empathetic towards Mary and Martha and wept when Lazarus had died and said, where have you laid him? And then raised him from the dead. It's interesting when we think about emotions today, there was a study recently done that said that men are more emotional than women. That's an interesting study because we wouldn't think that that would be the case. Now, that doesn't mean that women don't cry more than men. Because another study showed that women cry about 20% more than men do, which I thought it would be a greater number. To be honest, I thought women would cry like 90% more than men. 20% 20, 20 to me is not all that much. And one pastor said, no wonder women cry more. Look who they're married to. They're married to men. No wonder they cry as much as they do. But do you know why the study showed that men are more emotional than women? It, this is in America, by the way. It's an American study that men in America are more emotional than women in America. You know why that's the case? Sports. <laughs> Isn't that funny? When our team loses, what do we do? Don't even talk to me. I don't want to talk. I'm just going to go away. Leave me alone for a while. I can't believe they lost. Why'd they do that? Right? Or we're overjoyed. Oh, I can't believe I hope they win the next game. Oh, I can't believe they won. Uh, Jesus's sorrow was over people. He was a man of sorrow and a man of grief, I think for a couple of reasons. First of all, he entered into our world. He joined us. He created a world where there was sorrow and grief and pain and suffering. And he entered into that world and he faced sorrow, grief, pain, and suffering to the max. Sometimes people will ask me, why did God create a world with such suffering? Why would he create a world where children suffer, where people suffer? Well, remember, God didn't leave us alone in this world with suffering. And he had a plan for suffering and he showed us that through the cross. And you say, well, I wouldn't do it that way. I wouldn't make a world where there's suffering, that God has a plan for suffering. Well, when you create your own world, you can create it however you want to create it. Other than that, we're living in the world that God created and whatever suffering I go through, I want God to do his plan in the suffering in my life. Now, I don't want it. In fact, if God gives me an option, I'll opt out of all suffering forever. Just letting you know, I'll opt out of all suffering for the rest of my life, which I know is unrealistic, but that God would do his work in the suffering that he wants to do. The greatest work that he ever did in, in making provision for the sins of all people to be forgiven was through suffering. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus told his disciples as he went in, my soul is so sorrowful, I think I'm going to die. 
I think that that was a fulfillment of Isaiah 53, that he would carry our sorrow and our grief. It's not that we don't feel it because he carries it, but I believe that Jesus carries our sorrow and grief so it doesn't crush us. He, he bears it with us. And I think in the garden, all the sorrow and all the grief of all mankind was laid upon him. Like on the cross, all the sin of all mankind was laid upon him so that he cried out, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And so as Jesus rides into Jerusalem and he is weeping, by the way, this word for weeping here where it says, as he drew near, he saw the city and he wept over it. It's a strong word for weeping. When, when it says that he wept in John eleven thirty five. 35, which is the shortest verse in the Bible. And if you, if you haven't memorized a verse today, here's one for you to memorize. John eleven thirty five. 35, Jesus wept. Very easy, you're done. Worry about another verse tomorrow. But that word for weep is just the word for crying. He cried with them. This word for weep is connected to being distraught. He was visibly distraught as he rode down that Mount of Olives and saw the city of Jerusalem because he loves the people who are there. He wants people to get saved. The Bible says in 2 Timothy 2, 4, that God desires that all people would be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. That's God's will. God's will is that none would perish. So God has sorrow a lot because a lot of people are gonna perish. A lot of people reject him and turn away. There's also joy in heaven when one person is saved. So there is a sorrow. God has chosen to be sorrowful with us because he desires that all people would be saved. Listen to God speaking to Israel about them turning away from him. This is Ezekiel 33, 11. Say to them, as I live, says the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that, no, uh, but that the wicked would turn from their way and live. And then he pleads with Israel, who at this point in Ezekiel is embedded. Ezekiel was another prophet before they were taken into captivity by, by Nebuchadnezzar. And it's because of their idolatry. So he says to them this, turn, turn from your evil ways. For why should you die, O house of Israel? He knows that they're going to suffer greatly because they are rejecting him. And so he pleads with them to turn. I believe that God would plead with us today. That's why God says today is the day of salvation. Today, if you hear God's voice, do not harden your heart. That's why we as Christians have been called ambassadors of heaven. And then the verse says, as if we are pleading people to be reconciled with God. That's what we do. We want to see our family, our friends, our coworkers, the people in the sphere that God has put us in, that they would come back to Christ. May we too be sorrowful over the lost. May we have a genuine passion for the souls of men and women. You know, when a ship goes down at sea, they talk about how many souls die. That's the way that they say that. They'll, they'll say there were 490 souls that were lost. God sees souls in a different way. All the souls of all people that are lost. May God give us a passion for souls. Now, not only was Jesus weeping as he went into Jerusalem, and we know that he was weeping over the souls of the people in the city, not for the city itself. He knows what's going to happen to the city. He knows it's going to be a new Jerusalem. But there's this, this prediction in here, this prediction Jesus gave. Now, let me read you his prediction. Now, last night, I answer, right now, I answer our YouTube comments. 
Uh, other people answer some of the comments that we get in other places, but I answer our YouTube comments. It's just something I want to do. I just kind of want to stay connected and answer them. So we had a comment left last night. Somebody listened to our study. And then the comment last night, he said something like this. Seriously, prediction. People predict, God doesn't predict. So I had to write out the definition of prediction. <laughs> I was like, no, you can predict something you know is going to happen. We as humans predict that a team's going to win when we don't know, but God predicts the future. And the term for predict for God doesn't mean he's unsure of the future. It means he predicts it, that it's going to happen. So Jesus was a prophet and he had several predictions. There are several predictions that came to pass. Uh, listen to this prediction. Here's the prediction Jesus gives. I'm going to read 30, 40, 43 and 44. I realize that's the end of the text, but don't get excited that the study's done yet because it's not. All right, I got a ways after this. So verse 43, for the days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you and close you in on every side. He's obviously talking about the Romans sieging the city of Jerusalem and level you and your children within you to the ground. They came in with such anger. They, they knocked down, burned every building and they will not leave in you one, oh, excuse me, they will level you and your children within you. So this is why he's weeping because of the loss of these, these kids and people. And they will not leave in you one stone on another because you did not know the time of your visitation. He says, you guys could have avoided this had you known your time of visitation. So that's the second cryptic statement. The first one is, had you known the day that made for your peace? The second one is, had you known the day of your visitation? We'll deal with those there in just a minute. But let's talk about this prediction by Jesus. This is not the only prediction he made of Jerusalem. The disciples were walking along the temple mount one day and they looked at the rocks of the, that the temple was made out of the stones. They were very impressive, built by Herod the Great. And they said to Jesus, Lord, consider the stones. Look at the stones that the temple's made out of. I think without thinking about who they were talking to. Colossians says, that Jesus is the express image of the invisible God and all things were created by him, for him, and through him. Jesus created everything. And they're like, look at this building King Herod built. And Jesus probably went, well, wait till you see a couple nebulas I built, you know? I got a few things out there that are gonna surprise you. But Jesus said, I tell you the truth, not one of these stones will be left upon another, but they will all be knocked down that literally was fulfilled. When the Romans in their fury finally got into Jerusalem, they burned the temple, the, the gold band around the top melted, Josephus tells us, and the soldiers pushed the stones over, picked the gold out from them, pushed them over to the edge and pushed them off until the temple mount was clean of stones. There was another battle in 25 that finished it completely where not one stone from the temple is left on the temple mount. You can't find one stone from this 10-story building up there. You say, well, where are they? Well, they were, they were pushed onto the ground. And then over the centuries, because Jerusalem became a barren city, the, the, the dirt covered it up and they have excavated the pile of rocks these guys pushed over. Not all of it. There are certain parts that have not been excavated yet but there are places where they've excavated and found these rocks. I have a picture that I want to show you of me several years ago standing on these rocks. You can see how big the rocks are. Now, there's a red velvet rope just out of 
you know, we're, we're, the, the picture that I climbed over to get on top of these rocks. I looked around and Noah's was around and I said, get a picture. And I ran up there and stood and had a picture taken. But look at the size of these rocks, the, the, the stones. Now we don't know whether these were temple stones or not. Very, very likely could be. They were some structure that was up on the temple mount that was scraped off. And Jesus said that that would indeed be fulfilled. Now, Jesus gave some other predictions. Another one that really interests me is that Jesus said, Jerusalem, this is in, uh, let me get back to my predictions here. This is in, um, somewhere it's in the Bible. This is in Luke 21. We're going to be there. We're going to slow down in Luke 21 because he's going to talk about eschatology, the last days. We're going to slow down and take our time and make our way through that chapter. But here he says in Luke 21, 24, and they will fall by the edge of the sword. He's predicting Jerusalem's destruction again and lead them away captive into all nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled by Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles is fulfilled. Do you know that Jerusalem was under Gentile control until 1973. Israel had become a nation in 1948, but in 1973, on their most holy day, three nations around them, Syria, Jordan, and Egypt, attacked. It would be like us being attacked on Christmas. Most people were off. It was unexpected. And the initial attack, attack took Israel by surprise. Israel scrambled to get their planes in the air. They scrambled to get their tanks out working and they were able kind of miraculously to hold the West Bank and the area where the Negev is today. So they were able to hold off Syria and Egypt and Jordan just took their tanks and rolled in. They, they had nothing between them and Tel Aviv. And when they got the news that the Golan Heights had been stopped and that the Negev had been stopped, they thought it was a trap and they turned their tanks around and left, giving Israel time to get their army together. And they took Jerusalem for the very first time in 1973. It's not that long ago. I know for some of you kids, it seems like a long time ago. Wow, it was a long time. Was it that long ago? It's in our lifetime. I was 13 years old when Israel took control of Jerusalem again. And they're more and more gaining control. Now, I'm not saying we agree with the way that they're gaining control more and more. If you know anything about what's happening in Eastern Jerusalem today, they're moving in Jewish families into Palestinian neighborhoods. They're, take, they're taking more and more territory by purchasing from Palestinians their homes and moving Jewish families in. This is causing a lot of tension in Israel. It's one of the main reasons that there's a lot of tension. I'm not saying that we should agree with what the government is doing and taking it. Jesus just said, Jerusalem's going to be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles is fulfilled. And it's happening in our day. So Jesus gave predictions. And when I say predictions, I mean, he knew they were going to be fulfilled. He predicted them as prophecy, knowing that they were going to be fulfilled. All right, so finally, in the last part of our study, let's consider these cryptic statements of Jesus. The, you should have known the day of your visitation. You should have known the time that would make for your peace. There's two passages in the Old Testament where, where we are told when the Messiah would be on the earth. This is especially powerful for us because we can look back at these prophecies and see that Jesus was here when the Old Testament said that he should be. The first one is in Genesis 49, 10. And this is when Joseph, uh, Jacob 
is blessing his sons and he blesses Judah. Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah. Jerusalem is in the territory of Judah and the kings were from Judah. Only Saul, the first king, was from Benjamin, but David and the rest of the kings that, were, that sat upon the throne in Judah were from the tribe of Judah. And so he says to Judah, which by the way, if I were gonna choose one of Jacob's sons to bless that the Messiah would come through him, it wouldn't have been Judah because he had, he had trouble, okay? I think that God wants to show us that even if you have trouble, he can still use you. I think that's what God's doing there. But he says of Judah, uh, and I'm gonna quote Genesis uh, 49.10, the scepter shall not depart from Judah. The scepter belongs to a king. So the ruling part of Israel is gonna be in Judah. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor, nor a lawgiver from, uh, between his feet until Shiloh comes and to him shall be the obedience of the people. Shiloh simply means the one to whom it belongs. So the prophecy says, the scepter is not gonna depart from Judah until the one to whom the scepter belongs comes, and then the obedience of the people is gonna to be to him. Israel thought that happened in 14 AD. When the Romans made a move that Israel could no longer by themselves do capital punishment. In order for them to execute someone, Rome made a law that they had to first get the Romans to agree with it. Whoever was ruling in, in Judea had to agree and they thought then that the scepter had departed. And they wept. You can read the account. They tore their clothes. The leaders, the Sanhedrin in that time tore their clothes and, and wept and cried because the scepter had departed and Shiloh hadn't appeared. What they didn't know was at this particular point, Jesus would have been in, in Nazareth. He would have been in Galilee. That he was a young man at this time of, of 16, 17, 18 years old. That had they looked, the Messiah was there. That's a pretty incredible statement. They had interpreted it, meaning that when the scepter departs, Shiloh will be there. They interpreted it correctly. They just didn't receive Jesus. They just hadn't been revealed yet. The second passage that tells us when the Messiah is going to come is Daniel chapter 9. Now, some of you may hear me talk about Daniel chapter 9 and think you don't have enough time to go over it. And I don't. And I'm not going to. I'm going to simplify it for today. I'm going to give you what, what, the, what the passage tells us. And I'm going to leave you to do the homework. And I'm going to give you a resource to do that in just a moment. Okay? So in Daniel chapter 9, Daniel is reflecting from Jeremiah's writings how long they're going to be in captivity. Jeremiah says God had commanded them that they were supposed to give the land rest once out of every seven years, one year out of every seven years. In other words, they were supposed to have a week of years as well as a week of days. And we know now that agriculturally that you've got to let the land rest or you've got to rotate your crops or you deplete the land and you don't get good crops. So God wanted them to have good crops. So God wanted them to have the land rest for an entire year. They didn't have enough faith to do that. So they never did it. For 490 years, they didn't give it rest. So when, because of their idolatry, they were taken into captivity by Nebuchadnezzar, Jeremiah said, because you didn't give the land rest for 490 years, you will be in captivity for 70 years. Well, Daniel's reading Jeremiah. And he sees the 70 years. You're going to be in captivity for 70 years. And Daniel starts to calculate. 
Daniel's an older man now. He was in his teens when they were taken into captivity. And he realizes, it's close. We're going to be released from captivity soon. We're going to go back to Jerusalem. And that will happen under Ezra and Nehemiah, which is not far after Daniel, by the way. So Daniel begins to calculate this. And so Gabriel appears and gives Daniel a vision. And in this vision, he tells him, he talks to him in weeks of years, so you can do your own research. And I, I always want to bring up the weeks of years because I've had people tell me before, you, you pastors are tricky. You play fast and loose with the word weeks. The word for weeks there is the same word that is used for Jacob working for a week for Rachel. Do you remember when Jacob fell in love? It's a, it's a hilarious story, really. It really is. It's a love story, but it's a hilarious story. Jacob shows up at a well, sees a gal for the first time. It's, it's Rachel. And he kisses her and he cries. Now, that doesn't sound very romantic to me, right? When I was dating, I didn't kiss a girl and then cry, but Jacob did. And Jacob went to Laban, her father, and said, I want to I work for your daughter. And he said, work for me for a week. They had a word for weeks of years. That's the same word in Daniel chapter seven. So Jacob works for seven years for Rachel. Then he, on the wedding night, she's all veiled up and she comes out and he marries her and he goes in the tent where it's dark and he consummates the marriage. And in the morning, he looks over at his beautiful Rachel. And it's the older, ugly sister. <laughs> Leah. And he goes to, to Laban and says, you snake. I, I worked seven years. I worked a week for, for Rachel, not for Leah. And he goes, well, we have a custom in our land that you can't marry the younger before the older. Jacob could have said, that would have been good to know before. I could have married her off. I could have had a friend, you know, find a friend, find somebody for her to marry. And so Laban said, work for me another week. That's the word for weeks of years. Work for me another week and you can have Rachel as well. And he allowed him to marry Rachel right away, but he owed him seven years of work. And now Jacob had two sisters for wives, one of them loved and one of them not loved. How do you think that story ended up? Right? So he uses weeks of years for these calculations, but here's what you find when you do the calculations yourself. That in Daniel 9, 24 through 27, it's just three verses, from the going forth of the command, Remember, he's talking about going back into the land from the going forth of the command to rebuild Jerusalem and the streets will be built and the walls in troubled times until the Messiah. Now, you can go read it yourself. This is your homework. Daniel 9, 24 through 27 from the command to restore and rebuild Jerusalem and the walls and the streets will be built in troublous times until Messiah will be 483 years. You have to do the calculations I'm not going to do to get to 483 years, but that's what it says. Do the calculations yourself. If you add 483 years from, and we know when the starting date was, it was, it was Nehemiah chapter two that the command is given to go and restore the walls of Jerusalem by, Nebu by excuse me, by Artaxerxes. So Daniel, excuse me, I don't want to confuse you more, but I am, I realize by my stammering. So, Nehemiah gets news that Jerusalem is in ruins, even worse than it's ever been. And so Nehemiah goes into Artaxerxes as the cupbearer sadder than ever before. And we're told the day. We're told it was the month of Nisan in the 21st year of the reign of Artaxerxes. You can put all of that together to know that that was March of 445 BC. Again, you can do the work yourself. It's, it's there. So we know that's the starting date. And he was given a command by Artaxerxes on that day to go and rebuild Jerusalem. 
add 483 years to 445 BC, March 445 BC, and you come to the last three years in the first century. You come to a pretty specific date, by the way. It's pretty amazing. You come to the ministry of Jesus. So the Bible says, from the going forth of the command, there will be this many years until the Messiah, and you come to the ministry of Jesus. Now, if you want to do more work, the first one to ever do the work, and they did it thoroughly, was um, an Englishman by the name of Sir Robert Anderson. You can find his book online. You can download it now for free online. You can just go read his book online so you can do all of the research yourself. But he goes to a specific date. And I think that's a mistake because it gives the critics an opportunity to be able to come back and go, how do you know it was that date? What did you do with the year zero? How do you know they didn't ever make any days up? I think it's a mistake. Instead, just go, it says, it doesn't say until the Messiah rode into Jerusalem on a donkey. It says until Messiah. It's fulfilled when it says Messiah. So it tells us, this is a proof, this is evidence from the scriptures that Jesus is the Messiah. You get to the time of Jesus when the scepter departed. Some believe that that's the destruction of Jerusalem, by the way, so that you couldn't have the Messiah after 70 AD. I don't know. But all I'm saying is, if you look during those days, who else could be the Messiah? Who else has blessed all nations? Who else could do it? It should be something that encourages us in our faith that we are following what is true and correct because these passages told us these things. Now, let me give you three things quickly in closing. Number one, are you adding to the sorrow of Jesus by not coming to him? He loves you. He's sorrowful that you would perish. There's joy in heaven when you get saved. He wants you to come home. He wants you to become his child. Number two, do you know the things that make for your peace? The peace of God and peace with God. There, us as Christians, we understand that there's a peace when we shouldn't have it. And God brings that into our lives. And finally, don't miss the day of your visitation. That's why the Bible says today is the day of salvation. And today, if you hear God's voice, don't harden your heart. For those of you who have, have not come to Christ, or maybe you made a commitment years ago, but you walked away and never followed through, it's time to follow through. It's time to say, Lord, I want you in my life and I am now ready to live for you. Stand with me, would you, and let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the details that we find here of Jesus weeping over Jerusalem, that they should have known the day of their visitation, that they were gonna be destroyed within four decades, three decades from this particular point, that they would be completely destroyed. Lord, and that the predictions of Jesus came true. Again, so we know we can trust him. We pray that you would help us, that we would live now for you wholeheartedly. We thank you for this. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.